Good morning. Today's scripture is from Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters. The teacher asks us, Where is my, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left and went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened and one by one said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread in the bowl with me, the Son of Man, will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It will be better for him to have not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then they, had a, then they, sung, a, then they sung a hymn, and they went out to the mount of olives. When I was a kid, my dad was a pastor and grew up in church, around church all the time. Every so often, I don't remember the exact cadence, but there would be Lord's Supper Sunday and the stuff would come out. It'd be in big uh, metal silver containers. There'd be a whole altar thing in the front. There'd be this huge operation of these men that would come forward and pass out the plate First a tray with little crackers, then uh, trays with little cups of juice. I thought it was amazing. I'll never forget the times when I got caught sneaking some of those crackers before I was allowed to. Taking the cracker, taking the juice. Sunday after Sunday, time after time, I could remember thinking, uh, even as I would get in trouble for sneaking the juice and sneaking the crackers, I can remember thinking, it's just juice. It's just crackers. That's all this whole thing is. But then I can remember that first Sunday when we had communion after I was baptized and I was included in this whole thing. I was supposed to take the bread. I was supposed to take the juice. And suddenly it meant something to me. But honestly, that excitement about communion wanes. That first time sneaking it, there was some excitement probably from doing 
something I wasn't supposed to. And then that first time as a, as a believer taking it, there was this rich excitement. But over the years, if I'm honest, it wanes. It comes and it goes. Often the, the words that I just read or, or some version of them found in the other Gospels kind of sounds like the flight attendant telling us about how to buckle our seatbelts and put on our masks. It's just some noise that we drown out so that we can get on with our days. Often that's what communion, this taking of the bread and the wine, can mean. It's just, it's just noise that happens when we, before we get on with our days. After all, isn't it just bread and wine? Sometimes it means something to us, other times it doesn't. But in the end, isn't it just gluten-free crackers and juice? I think we're missing some important things in the story. It isn't just bread and wine. It isn't just symbolism. It's both the story and the reality of the redemption and the promise of Jesus. In fact, I'm going to say we need this whole thing to be more than just bread and wine. More than just ritual. We need it for our souls to mean so much more. And I don't just mean that, that we need to muster up the, the thoughtfulness around it. I mean that, that our souls cry out for the significance of this to be more than bread and wine. There are two things I think that we're missing with this story. Words that don't really flow off of our tongues very often. Concepts that we don't really dive into that regularly. One is Passover, and the other is covenant. And not only will we see that this is more than bread and wine, we'll also see that Jesus is perhaps more than we thought as well. First, this Passover feast. The, the passage tells us that this was on the day where they would sacrifice the Passover lamb, and that was the big day when they would have this feast and this meal. The people of Israel, they had lots of festivals, and, and Passover was one of them. I find it interesting that this is kind of the occasion that Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, because there was also the, the festival of atonement, the day of atonement where a lamb would be sacrificed for all the sins of all the people of Israel for the entire year before. It was just pretty amazing. They would get this spotless, blameless lamb. The priests would put their hands on it, and they would sort of pray onto this lamb all the sins of the entire nation. And then that lamb would be slaughtered, and that would be the payment for sin for the people of Israel. And then there would also be another lamb that they would pray the same thing over, and that lamb would run off into the wilderness to be lost forever. That was the Day of Atonement, a pretty great thing. Through those lambs, the people were both forgiven of their guilt and also made righteous because the guilt was forgotten. It was as far out of our minds, as far away from God and the temple as could be conceived. Now that's quite the festival, right? 
That seems like that would be a good one for Jesus to participate in. Maybe that even kind of lines up really poetically with what we might even think happens on the cross. Jesus taking the sins of the world, making us right. But that's not the festival that's happening here. There is also the festival of plenty or of booths, the day where the people were celebrating the fact that they were brought out of the desert into a land of abundance. After all their years wandering around in the desert, they finally were brought into the land that God had promised them. And this was the moment where they thought, like, everything is good. It's where they entered the land of milk and honey. Everything so wonderful. That's a pretty great celebration. It kind of thought, like, lands over the life of Jesus, right? Here he is. Here he is in this moment. He's going to bring the people out of the desert wastelands of suffering, and he's going to bring them into this abundant life. Isn't that what Jesus's life was all about? But that's not the festival that Jesus chose to go into the city. There were other festivals that we don't really have time to get into, but each of them are dripped with meaning, and each of them kind of points to Jesus in some way. But the fact is, Jesus came into Jerusalem for the very last time, came into Jerusalem to die for Passover, which was for the people of Israel in all honesty. This was the big one. Passover was the key festival. It was the granddaddy of them all. It was the meal of remembrance when they actually became a people, a people redeemed. Passover is a story of remembrance. Uh, maybe you, you uh, remember the story. Passover celebrates the people being liberated out of Egypt. The high points are pretty much this, the people of of Israel, uh, the people, the descendants of Abraham, were, were bound into slavery and captivity under Pharaoh in Egypt. It was a brutal thing. They were, they were tasked with hard, hard labor. Children, if they were born, were supposed to be killed right there on the spot, right as they were delivered from their mother. They were supposed to be killed. It was a brutal Uh, awful experience and they experienced it for hundreds of years and the story of Exodus actually begins with God hearing the cries of the captives these bound bonded slaves and what happens over the course of time is God rescues these people by confronting all of the the gods and the idols of Pharaoh and of Egypt he comes for them and he takes them on he rescues them but in the middle of all of that, you know, you might remember the plagues, the, the bloody river, the swarms of locusts, the frogs, the boils, the whole thing. But time after time, Pharaoh would not let the people be free. And then there was this last thing that is Passover. The last, the last of the curses. God was going to come and kill the firstborn from every family, animal or human. It was a brutal cost for redemption. But the people could be saved if they took a perfect lamb 
and they killed that lamb and they put the blood of that perfect lamb on their doorposts, the, the, the death that was coming would see the blood of this perfect lamb and would pass over that house going on to the next. Bloodshed on the doorpost. Death would pass over. And what happened was exactly that. The people of Israel took their lambs, they put the blood on their doorposts, waited there in their homes, and then the very next day, they were greeted with the news. Not only were they saved, but they were redeemed. They were no longer in bondage, but they were free to go. That this final thing of death and this uh, had bought them freedom. And they walked out of Israel that, uh, out of Egypt that day for the very last time. They walked through the city. They walked out into the desert. They walked to the Red Sea. God leading the way. A cloud of smoke taking them where they were supposed to go. It was perhaps the most remarkable event in human history. They walked through the Red Sea into the desert where God formed them into a people. He shaped them into a whole identity uh, of God's people. They went from slavery and bondage into freedom and incredible purpose to be God's people, to, to know him and to watch him work day by day. They went from being nobodies into being the very people of God. They went from being children who were slaughtered at their birth to being a massive uh, multi-generational tribe that wandered the desert into abundant land. That's what they're celebrating on this night. That's the Passover meal. At least what they're trying to remember. The elements of that meal would be uh, bitter herbs to remember the, the bitterness of, of being a slave. It had some sweet mortar to remember the, the hard work that it was. It had all of these different elements. And, and honestly, if you want, there's a free guide uh, at saturatetheworld.com where you could download a guide to lead your family through a Passover meal this week. It could be a really fun and beneficial thing. But two core elements of, the, of this entire meal was the unleavened bread. It was unleavened because they didn't have time to actually let the bread rise. It was flat. And eating that bread, they remembered the rushing that it took them to leave that next day. The hurried anticipation. It also reminded them of the bread that came from heaven. That filled them every day in the desert. And then throughout this Passover meal, there are multiple cups of wine, multiple toasts, if you will. And each time they take a toast, it's to remember a different point of the journey. However, the last cup and the last toast was that of waiting and longing. Waiting and longing for, for when God would redeem his people again. And that that, that cup that you would drink of it, that would be the complete moment. But year after year, generation after generation, that cup sat there in the middle of the table, unsipped, unshared, because the Redeemer had not arrived. 
There was no new Passover lamb. Year after year, they waited in in anticipation. Will this be the moment where someone comes, where God does something, where not only are we restored, but we're brought and we're delivered from the bondage of sin, death, and evil once and for all. And that is the final cup. And here lies some of the most deep meaning. We know it's at the end of the meal because after Jesus says these things, they get up and they leave. This is the final moment. He picks up the bread and he says, this is my body. Take and eat. Essentially saying, I am the provision from heaven that satisfies and sustains in the desert. Jesus picks up the cup, the cup of redemption, and he says, this is my blood. I'm the Passover lamb. This final cup that you've always waited for, it's me. Through my blood that will be spilled for you, that will be spread across, not a doorpost, but spread across a cross, bearing all shame, all guilt, all death, you will be redeemed from bondage. You will be brought out of death, out of the slavery of sin, out of the very tangible reality that you are not your own, and now you will be free. Jesus is the Passover lamb. In fact, we need him to be the Passover lamb. If this is just bread and wine, we still need something to redeem us from the bondage we experience every day. We still need something to set us free from the captivity of our own lusts and injustice and greed and and abuse. We need still someone or something to set us free. And And if Jesus isn't the Passover lamb, then by all means, we should continue to pursue those other things. But if he is, If Jesus did give his body as the bread of life, if he gave his blood as the Passover lamb, if he gave himself that way, we've been set free. We've been set free from all things that entangle us. From all sin, but also from all death. Not just death, but the evil that grips us each day, we've been set free by the Lamb. The other thing is the covenant. The covenant situation was a reality of Israel. Uh, It was sort of the core thread, if you will, even through the whole Old Testament. A covenant Uh, is this ancient reality of a grand bargain or a grand deal. But it's more than just a contract. It's really the highest of stakes, the the most lasting of promises two people can make to each other. It's like marriage, but it's much longer. These covenants lasted generation to generation to generation. And the Old Testament story has, has a handful that are all kind of woven together like a rope. The first is about Noah. 
after the flood, God comes and he makes a covenant with creation. He will never flood the world again because of the sins of humanity. In that covenant, God commits himself. He commits his entire self for generation after generation to the restoration of of creation from the bondage and the effects of sin. Then there's the Abraham covenant. God would make a family to be a blessing, that he would multiply them, he would give them what they needed, that he would be their God and they would be a blessing to the entire world. In that covenant, this Abraham covenant, God had committed his entire self, put himself on the line for the thriving of humanity, the blessing of humanity through this family of Abraham and Sarah. There was also the covenant with David. God would bring a king who would reign forever. This king that God promises would heal. He would defeat evil. He would be the good king that we all long for, the good ruler who casts and cares for us. And God, in that covenant, committed his entire self to the restoration of the world through a good king. And then there was one other dominant covenant in the Old Testament. For the people redeemed through Passover, like we just talked about, it was the covenant. It was the covenant fashioned on Mount Sinai. After the people were free from Egypt and outside of the Red Sea and that whole thing, God took them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and Abraham went up. And while he's up there, God gives the covenant that goes something like this. God says, I carried you out of slavery like you were on eagle's wings, and I brought you out of it. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. And then he goes on to talk about how there'll be a holy priesthood nation, that they will actually bring the world into the presence of God. You will be my people, I will be your God. He says that I will lead you, I will teach you how to live, I will provide for you, I will bless you. This was the covenant. God committed his entire self to these people who he redeemed. For generation after generation, he would be with them. And they would commit their entire selves, their heart, mind, soul, and strength, to loving God and loving their neighbor. You could really sum up the two commandments or the Ten Commandments into those two. And that's pretty much what Moses does in Deuteronomy when he gives that sort of golden rule. That that their end of the bargain, Moses is saying, is to love God and to love their neighbor to the completeness of themselves. This was a good covenant. This was a grand bargain. They got the presence of God and all the comfort and power and hope and justice and mercy that came along with God. They just had to give themselves to it. They just had to give themselves to God, 
dedicate themselves to God and dedicate themselves to their neighbor. God even gave them tons of practical ethics on how to do that. There's multiple books of the Bible that just outline what they had to do. It was a good covenant. And honestly, these are the sorts of covenants that we make all the time, though we don't use tablets of stone and we don't use the language covenant. But these are ones that we're familiar with. To our careers, I'll give you my time, my thought, my energy, my emotions, my resources. To our families, I'll give you everything. To our friendships, I'll give you all that I can. To our comfort, to our pleasures, we'll give our whole selves to all of these things, hoping that what we get in return is some sort of presence, some sort of peace, comfort, love, affection, significance hoping that those things that we commit ourselves to will make us well. The people of Israel made that same sort of commitment. They didn't live within the covenant of God, but instead they pursued pleasure and money and significance and control and a whole host of things that we're familiar with when humanity goes bad. And that led to outcomes that we also know well. Injustice, abuse, neglect, hollowed out humans from pursuing things that will not satisfy. Of all the covenants, this one seems like the biggest failure. This is the one that is remembered on Passover. But Jesus holds up the wine and he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. Jesus is saying that the promise has arrived. All of them. The covenants are getting completed. All of them. Jesus is saying, all the promises, all the covenants are now going to be tangible and they're going to be real. And the time of waiting for them is over. They're complete in me. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham that's going to bless the whole world. Jesus is the king of David that's going to rule the whole world. Jesus is the priest, the nation, the people. He embodies it all. He's the Israel that will actually love God and love neighbor. He's going to do it all and he's going to do it on our behalf. He's going to do it in our place and he's going to do it for our restoration and it's going to cost him his life. It's going to cost him his blood poured out for us. It's going to cost him getting in our place. The only way to become the king that, that is promised to David is to walk in with a crown of thorns. The only way to be the family that, that Abraham was supposed to be was to carry a cross. The only way to be the covenant people of Israel was to bear all the sin and the guilt and the shame on the cross. The only way to restore creation itself was to die for the sins of the world and then to redeem even death itself. That's the only way. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. That's happening right now. That's what this wine is all about. Man, we, want, we need Jesus. 
to be the new covenant. See, Jesus is not adding a covenant here. He's completing all of them. But if it's just bread and wine, we still need some sort of deal that will restore us. If it's just bread and wine, we need something that's going to give us our lives back. But if Jesus gave his body and his blood on the cross, we've been ushered into a new reality where his work, his life, his grace, his mercy doesn't just extend to us, but it is actually in us. Because what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to be the promise. I'm going to be the people. You drink this. You, become, you follow me. You become my disciple. I'm going to do both the will and the work within you. You'll be faithful because I've been faithful. If Jesus gave his body and blood on the cross, he is restoring creation itself. If all of this is true, all people on earth will be blessed and are blessed by the grace of God. If Jesus really did these things, he is the king we long for. If he's the covenant, we don't have to prove ourselves, but we get to live in grace. If he's the covenant, we don't have to despair the world, but live in hope. If he's the covenant, we don't have to rule our lives, but we live underneath his love. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you longing to step into this story, longing to be part of it. Help us in this moment, even now, to be people who recognize you and worship you as the Lamb who redeemed us. That we look to you as the new promise, the covenant that restores everything. Fill us with worship today. Fill us with a heart to adore you even now when the world feels like it's breaking. Give us hope. Hope in these truths. And give us an ability to speak these things to those all around us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.